Welcome to Resiliency Within, featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras. In unprecedented times, our beliefs and well-being are put to the test. When we take the things we've learned in life and look at challenges in a whole new way, we learn to develop resiliency, which can then be used to promote healing and personal strength. Now, here is Elaine miller Karras. Welcome to Resiliency Within. I'm your host, Elaine miller Karras. My show today is entitled Racial Tragedy and Intergenerational Resiliency and features the very personal story recounted by my guest, Phil Allen Jr., who I will introduce to all of you in a few moments. Amani Perry, a professor of American, uh, African-American studies at Princeton University, stated recently, human beings organize knowledge through storytelling. We create ourselves in light of the stories we hear and tell. Having stories that give us courage and inspiration are always necessary, but especially so when we face injustice. Phil Allen is a storyteller, recounting the truthful story of his grandfather, Nathaniel Allen, through his documentary and book entitled Open Wounds, a story of racial tragedy, trauma, and redemption. Phil Allen Jr. is also the founder of the nonprofit, The Racial Solidarity Project. He is a speaker, a preacher, an author, a poet, a doctoral candidate at Fuller Theological Seminary, and a documentary film producer. And to use Phil's own words, he is driven towards racial justice as well as healing the trauma that is inflicted by racial tragedies and societal constructions that perpetuate racial equities inequities. It has been said that Open Wounds is a transformative experience of listening and learning as you, Phil Allen, the grandson of Nathaniel, looks, laments, and ultimately leads your family and society forward towards a just and reconciled future. It is an essential part of our national reckoning with racism and injustice. We commemorate your grandfather today as we remember his life and legacy, and we acknowledge Black History Month And sadly, on December 10th, 1953, Nathaniel Allen was murdered on the Sampit River in South Carolina by his white employer who lured him into the meeting under the false promise of reconciliation. His death was recorded as an accidental drowning, but it was a deliberate cover-up of a bullet hole seen by more than one witness. And right now, it is my honor to introduce his grandson, Phil Allen Jr., to us. Phil, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure hanging out with you and talking with you. <laughs> well, we've, we've known each other for a little bit, so it's, it's been an honor to be in your film. Actually, I have a little spot in it as well. But it's yep. just we begin, as I just even say the words about your, your grandfather, is there anything that's on your mind that you'd like to say before we start with some of the kind of formal questions that we've prepared today? Uh, you know, as you, as you introduced me, when you said um, his grandson, um, because most of my life I've never been referred to um, in relationship to my grandfather. So that was, that was really cool to hear. Um, Not just because I did the documentary in the book, but um, it's, it's like living, living out his legacy or continuing my grandfather's legacy. And for 40 plus years, never even thought about it. Yeah. Until I until I embarked on this uh, this journey, and so that to hear you say we have with us today 
Nate's grand, Nathaniel Allen's grandson. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of the first time I've ever heard someone say that. Oh my goodness. I got chills all over me, with, all over <laughs> my hands and, and arms when I've said it. So I'm so glad that we could acknowledge him yeah. and that we can hear more about, you know, the story. So the, that brings me to my first question is what inspired you to produce the film and write a book about the injustice of your grandfather's murder? You know, the, the first thing that comes to mind, the first thing I wanted to do was honor my grandfather's name. Um, you know, as I did the research and asked the question to, to find out what happened to him, and I saw on his death certificate, accidental drowning. And there was a time when I actually believed that that may have been true. Mm-hmm until I talked with, spoke with my grandmother. And once she confirmed that her father saw his body and saw the bullet hole, um, then that, that settled it for me. And so for me, I wanted to honor his name because he will forever be dishonored with that lie on his death certificate. Yes. And he's a, a veteran. He was a veteran, um, was willing to put his life on the line for this country during World War II. And they dishonored him. Yes. And so this story is about honoring my grandfather. So I know that it's also about your grandmother. And if you could share a little bit about your experience with her, because I think she's part of this, a very big part of the story as well. Absolutely. My my grandmother, um, she raised me for a number of years in my life. Uh, I lived with both of my grandparents at different times. I lived with my parents um, for a period as well. But my grandmother, in my high school years, I lived with her. And I was close to both all my grandparents. And I never understood why she was the way she was in terms of her temperament. Mm. Um, you know, she could be tough to be around. She, she could be tough to, to, <laughs> to deal with. She was a tough lady. And doing the research and talking to her brothers shed light on so much for me. And I realized how much she carried that event with her the rest of her life. So she suffered. She suffered. And she suffered in, did she suffer in silence? Did she share? Absolutely. She never, she never spoke to to my father about his father until he was in his late thirties. She never spoke to her grandkids about, our grandfather, and she would shun you if you tried to ask any questions about it. And you could, you could, you could see the visceral response. You, her, her body would constrict. I talk about this in the book. Her body would constrict, tighten. Her face would tighten. You could see it. And I, I didn't understand that until I began to understand trauma and, and the implications of trauma on our bodies and our emotions, our minds that we can carry with us. And so, and so if I could just pause for a second, because I think that's how, that's of course how we became acquainted was you were seeking some answers about, well, how does trauma impact someone across generations? And one of the things that you're talking about, your grandmother being so constricted and tight and, how have you been, you know, this, the whole program, the resiliency within is about, you know, what, what has helped you get through? What has sparked your, which I've seen so many times, Phil, your resiliency when you've faced this incredible tragedy of your family's um, story. And yet I see you so many times being so positive and, and touching into the suffering, but there's something more. And in fact, we've used the same line, like what else is true? 
Could you talk a little bit about that with us? Yeah, I, I think um, being one generation removed from my grandfather and the event spared me some of the uh, some of that trauma. Um, my my father said he prayed over me when I was in my mother's womb, and I really believe that that was significant. And I've seen all the things that have happened over the course of my life, so I know that there's grace that there's. There's God's hand is on my life. I understand that. And so I, I have I have the space to be able to to uh, do the research, to, to go down this road. But I think more importantly, um, knowing, seeing how strong my grandmother was and all that she accomplished in her life, um, that fired me up. That motivated me. It's almost like I, I have to do something to honor my grandfather, to do what my grandmother couldn't do. Um, so I learned a lot of that from her, from my hmm. grandparents. Well, it's almost like you're honoring your grandmother at the same time. Can we hear, what, what was her name? Rebecca Young. Rebecca. Okay, Rebecca. Yeah. So you're also honoring her because as she suffered and she kept silent, but then she decided to start to speak about your grandfather. So what, what happened that caused that to start to, to occur? You know, I ask that question all the time. And I won't ever get an answer. <laughs> Because the first time she didn't want to talk about it, but about nine months before she passed, my uncle, uh, my dad's, one of my dad's older brothers, he was in the nursing home and he couldn't speak. He couldn't move. Um, he died of complications of CTE uh, from, playing, from playing football, college and professionally. And I don't know if that affected her and she wanted to just share, but she was in a very vulnerable place. And so I asked her again, and this time she was willing to share. Hmm. And I don't know if she felt like her, she was coming near the end of her life and she needed to, to get it off her chest. I don't know. But she began to talk about it. That was the only conversation we ever had. Hmm. And she and so, passed. Go ahead. No, I was going to say she passed away about nine months later. And so you were able to take that bit of information that she gave you along with, I know you've done a lot of discovery about what happened to your grandfather. If you'd like to tell us a little bit more about your journey. Yeah, I, I went to Sundance Film Festival two years ago and um, watching a film and seeing that some of the details in the film reminded me of the details in my grandfather's story. And so I went back to a forum. I was there with Wind Rider Productions. They do a forums at, at Sundance for Christian colleges and schools, but not only Christian colleges, they'll have universities there as well. Filmmakers, people who are interested in the arts and, and film will come as, as a class. So I was taking a class. I never thought I'd be taking a class at Sundance doing a PhD program, but I was doing that. And I shared in the forum after a young man saw the same movie and he said, um, I don't really know anybody that's ever been lynched. Um, I don't have that experience. He's from, he was from Seattle, I think, Washington State. And he talked about the technical aspect of the film. But the film had, had touched me deeply. So I began to share my grandfather's story. It was then that people started to say to me, you have got to tell this story. Wow. I never set out to, to do a film, maybe write a book, but not do a film. I called my friend um, L. Michael Lee. 
who directed my film. And um, we talked briefly on the phone and decided we'd do it. And in six months, we were able to go back to uh, South Carolina and interview and ask questions and go to locations I had never been. There were three locations I'd never been. I'd never been to my grandfather's grave. Um, I'd never been to the last place where he was alive before he got in the boat to go to that small island where he was killed. Um, I'd never been to, there's a monument with a list of the, the seamen who died on, on, at sea. His name is on that, on that monument. So I was able to, to, I felt closer to my grandfather. Um, so what was, that, what was that like? I mean, the emotional experience of, of really um, retracing the footsteps of your grandfather, knowing that he had been murdered at the same time. Yeah, it, it was a constant back and forth, uh, up and down, I should say. So I felt excited to see these locations, see his name, see his grave site. But then I felt grief at the same time uh, because it was almost like I'd never been close, been that felt that close to my grandfather. And I wanted to hear his voice. Now I wanted to speak with him now and, and couldn't. So it was this constant up and down with me during that season. Um, and it was about getting closure, getting some sort of closure for myself and my family. Well, so, you know, some people have shared with me sometimes when they've had these kinds of experiences, they almost feel like the, um, the spirit of the person who's passed becomes so apparent with them. It's almost like they're speaking to them. Did you have any experiences like that? And if you did, can you share those with us? No, I, I didn't really have that profound of an experience. I just felt a sense of closeness to my grandfather. Ah, okay. Uh, maybe, maybe it's, I'm describing the same thing, but I didn't yeah, feel, I didn't feel, yeah, I did feel at his gravesite, especially. I felt like, I felt like if I turned around, he would be walking up behind me yeah, or something that's saying, exactly hey. What, that's exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> right. So you could, you could sense him. Yeah. 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 And you, and you know, it's a, for those of you that are listening to us, there's a big smile on Phil's face when he said <laughs> that he, he could hear that. Yes. So, you know, I'm curious, too, now about talking about other family members. I mean, how your siblings were impacted, but also just curious about your dad. So how has this journey impacted your father and your relationship with your dad? Great question. I I think it's been a blessing to my dad. I've never heard him talk about his father to me Hmm. until a few years before I made the film. We had a conversation. And he was still, his uh, doctor was saying that he was, or therapist was saying that he was depressed because of the death of his mother and his brother. And I said to him, do you think that you're still grieving? He said he was still grieving. And I said, do you think you're still grieving your father's death? And he said, well, I, I never knew my dad. And I said, that's my point. Yeah. And he had never thought about it. He said, you may be onto, onto something. So as we began to do this film, I would talk to him about his dad. I would share things that I found out. I probably know more about his dad than he does. And how old was he when his dad was murdered? Two years old. Two years old. Okay. 
So he never knew his father. He found out at nine how his father was killed. And you think that was a pivotal time in your... So what happened when he was nine then? What happened when he learned that information? My grandmother told me when my father found out, from that point on, he was an angry person. And my dad admitted that he fought all the time. He looked to fight. He looked to fight white boys his age as he grew. If they were his age, if they were anywhere in sight, he would start a fight with them. And my dad was known as a fighter. My dad was known, like, you don't mess with him. Um, And he did that until, he said, until I was born, um, until I was conceived. And so he was this angry person. And then he began to take it out on my mom during the course of their marriage. And that's what I grew up in. That's the dad that I knew. And that's that, that's that intergenerational trauma that we're talking about. What happens when things are, are not witnessed, when the truth isn't told, or when it's been shrouded, and when there's been the horrible um, murder that was said to the world that it was an accidental drowning. Yep. So you don't get to really know what happened. So there's just this, this mystery and shroudedness that happens. So... So how do you think the, the this has impacted your dad that you're talking about his father? You've learned about his dad. What's what's happened with that? Since we've been over the last couple of years, since we've been having these conversations, I I, I could sense on the phone because my dad lives in Minnesota. I could sense on the phone that he uh, he's lighting up. He lights up. Hmm. As I share things with him or as he talks about his dad, he lights up. As I share people's response to the film, people's response to the book, he lights up. I, I honestly believe that it's brought healing to my dad. My dad struggled for, for decades with substance abuse. And um, he's been sober for, for a number of years now. So he's doing well. And I believe coinciding with that, has been the telling of his father's story. And I, I believe that it's, it's brought some healing and it's actually brought us closer because we've never really had this type of relationship in my life. Well, I think that that comes to my next question. What does redemption um, look like for you personally and, and for your family collectively as you, as you share this with us? I, I think healing first, when you tell the truth, so, so when that death certificate says accidental drowning, a narrative was created. A false narrative was created. And there are even people my grandfather's age in their 80s and 90s. They believe, black people back home, when you, when you ask about my grandfather, they'll say, oh, yeah, he drowned in the Sampit River. And then I have to correct them and say, well, no, he didn't drown. He was killed. And they didn't so they bought the narrative. Yes. They bought into it. And so now I'm rewriting the narrative. I'm doing the investigating, doing the, the research. My grand, like I said, my great-grandfather saw his body. The, the funeral director couldn't say anything or he would have, something would have happened to him. And we have people who shared in the film that they had conversations with the funeral director. They, they had a connection there. Um, and then Is the, the, there any chance that now that this this truth is coming out, that they can change the death certificate, that the, um, the, the 
you know, the governmental officials of that part of South Carolina could say, we were wrong, we can change this or, or not. What's been their reaction to the film? Do they know about the film, first of all? And if they do know about it, have, have they reached out to you in any way? No, I don't know if they know anything about the film. Um, I haven't reached out to them. My grandmother, my father said my grandmother tried to get the case reopened maybe 15 years ago. And they, they rejected it. They wouldn't do that. I think the only option would be if we were to exhume his body and if we were to either find a bullet in there or some sign of a bullet um, that that might change, that, that he was shot. I mean, is that, would that be important to you if that could happen or not? I mean, I know that the journey may be, it's not, you're, you're shaking your head. So no. It's, it's not that important to you. No, I, I, I wouldn't want to do that. Um, I, I, it would be up to my, my father and his, and his brother and I know they wouldn't want to do that. I think knowing the stories from my grandmother, from my father, from my uncle, uh, and then the man uh, apparently in his later years before he passed, he admitted that he did. Oh, he did. Yeah, to someone. And I can't really share. Um, they, they asked me not to, but they, they, they said that this man admitted to them. So that's enough for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I always wondered if 10 years, 20 years after my dad and uncle maybe passed away, if I would, as the oldest grandchild, if I would do that. And I don't think I would. Yeah. So, um, I, you know, I guess it's, it's also, a, it's, you're on a journey. And sometimes we don't know, you know, where we're going to, it's the journey is the journey. We don't know where we're going to end up. So yep. you don't have to make that decision right now. Plus, it's not yours to make. It sounds like it would be your dad and your uncles. Yep. You know, that comes to the next question is that, you know, what can others in, in our country learn about the effects of racism and um, I guess the availability of kind of the resiliency that you're sharing with us, even that decision about, I don't need to do that. Can you let us, what, what are your thoughts about that, Phil? I think when it comes to racism, I think what frustrates me the most is when people say, can we forget about the past and move on? And that's a dangerous suggestion. And when it comes to black folks, the black community, it's the only group that people will say that about. Because we never say that in regards to, say, the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And we shouldn't. No. Um, I, was, I was there at Auschwitz. I visited Auschwitz a couple of times. And it's, it's, it's sobering. It's, it's like a, a long funeral the whole time you're there. You're yes. grieving. I can't I imagine what those... Yeah, I haven't been to Auschwitz, but I've been to Dachau, and I, I know the experience of that. I mean, and yeah. I think part of the motto is, is that we'll never forget. Yes. Yes. And so the same is true for us. We're living out the legacy of the past, not just slavery, but Jim Crow era. There are families. Since I've done this film, there have been many families that have come to me emailed me or said to me after a a showing, the same thing happened to my uncle, my dad, my grandfather, my cousin, the same thing. And my family just never talked about it. So we're carrying the trauma for generations. And so when people think about the response to say, the video of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, the news of Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, we're not responding to just one individual event, we're responding to another one. 
in the lineage. Yes. Yes. So it's not, let's forget about the past. How can you forget about something that still continues? Well, and I think that's the, the, what I've been pondering is that it's not over. <laughs> that's what you're saying. I mean, it's not the past. It's the past that, and how the past creeps into the present and all the suffering that continues. And so, and that's, you know, so how do you think, how do we change this? You know, I've seen so much divisiveness in this, in this country and, you know, you've lived with it. Your, your families live with it. And I think there has been an amplification of divis- divisiveness over the last five years. And I think we have some opportunities to see how can we come together? You know, what are your thoughts about how do we do this? I mean, what a, it's kind of a big question, but I think, you know, if we can start the dialogue we can maybe do something differently in the future and, ch- and change some of that institutional, the structures that, you know, were, were developed long before we were born and yep. yet we're all affected by them now. So what are your thoughts about that? I, I think one, there's no one, one way. I think there are multiple ways of, of doing it and they have to come together. But I think a, 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 just like what I'm doing with my film, um, I'm, I'm, I'm taking back the narrative and telling the truth. And so textbooks don't have the whole picture. Um, history is not told from black and brown perspective. Right? And so I and that's think why this and that's why Black History Month is so important, but it really should be every month. It shouldn't yeah. just only be February, right? It yes. should be every month. Because if we only tell the stories from one perspective, we're never gonna get the the narrative. And if the narrative has come from untruths, how can we know it really happened? So, exactly. Yeah. So continue. Yes. So, so I think, I think starting that's, that's a good starting point is we have to t- teach people. This is what ha- actually happened. Yes. I know people who say slavery wasn't that bad. What? I, I've heard, I've <laughs> heard, heard people say that I've heard white folks say, well, slavery wasn't that bad because they at least had a place to stay. They had food. They had, so that well, tells me they are not familiar with what actually happened. No. How could they be? Right? Or the fact that these people were c- considered property. And so this idea of listen, learn, lament, labor is something I came up with in a class um, after listen, an experience. Listen, learn, learn lament, lament labor. labor. Those four terms. Okay. So the listen, learn piece, I've heard everyone saying that. But that really has to be about listening to our stories, but also sitting under teachers, professors, um, leaders, theologians, what have you, and learning of, of color, of black folks, and learning from them. Yes. Listening and learning. And then the, the, the other part is from there, there should be lament. There should be, there should be grieving. But we don't sit still enough. We don't listen and learn outside of you know, the, 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 the dominant perspective, the dominant narrative to even give ourselves a chance to lament. Well, and when you tell me about your grandma and how she held her body so tight, you know, whether she was given the space to really grieve and lament for what had happened to your, your grandfather. But if that can happen, if that, can, that expression of grief, which we know it can be so healing, how could that impact what we're talking about right now? It's important, isn't it? Absolutely. And I, I share with a lot of my white brothers and sisters that if you take the time to hear our stories, 
lament in that, grieve in that with me, I'm, I'm betting that there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for you to see yourself in me. Right. And so because what happens? You, what happens when we can see ourselves in another person? What happens? Empathy. Empathy. Compassion. Empathy happens. Compassion happens. Uh, righteous indignation happens. Yes. But this, the scary part is it, it's going to cause you to have to re-review your worldview. And you have to have a new narrative, right? It has to be a new narrative because it has to say, oh, just don't get over it, right? It yep. has to say, of course, how can, how can you do that? Because it is living right now within us, amongst yep. us. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're going to get ready for a little bit of a break. Um, and I want to let people know that when we come back from this break, Phil's going to continue to talk with us about his reflections, about how we can, even more so than what we've talked about so far, how can we um, really try to look at this issue of racism and how we can come together. We've, we've only heard the lament. We need to hear about the labor part. And I think that's probably labor and work, right? Because it takes work. And it also takes discussion and not being silent. Yep. So, and it can be uncomfortable to talk about this, right? Because I know that we talk about white fragility, about, oh, I don't know. I don't want to say anything that could harm you to hurt you. Well, of course, I don't want to do that. But then if we don't talk about it, how do I know? So, we have to have the conversations. And so, that's what we will continue to do you know, after the break. And I really, I'm so excited. I want to say this before the break and I'm going to say it afterwards that your book, Open Wounds, is launched right tomorrow, February tomorrow. 9th, yes. 2021. So I feel so yes. honored that we're talking to you on February yeah. 8th. I want you to know that I went to Amazon this morning and I bought it. It's going to be delivered to my house tomorrow. So awesome. I, really, I mean, I've seen your film, of course, but I'm really interested in seeing the deeper reflections that I know that you will bring out um, in the book. So um, you. please, everybody, go to your Amazon.com or wherever else, and you'll take, give us more information and get open wounds, and you can hear more about the, the deep reflections of this wonderful um, man, Phil Allen, the Thank grandson you. of Nathaniel. And with that, we'll take our break, and we'll be back in a couple minutes. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Elaine miller Karras' book, Building Resiliency to Trauma, the Trauma and Community Resiliency Models, is available on Amazon.com. The book is about how to cultivate resiliency during and in the aftermath of traumatic experiences. The book also addresses body-based trauma interventions combined with psychoeducation about the biology of trauma and resiliency. Elaine also offers personal consultations. For more information, you can contact her at Elaine at ResiliencyWithin.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Elaine Miller Karras co-founded the Trauma Resource Institute, Incorporated. The Institute provides trainings on the models Elaine developed, the Community Resiliency Model, or CRM, and the Trauma Resiliency Model, or TRM. If you would like more information about the Trauma Resource Institute or how to participate in trainings, visit the Institute's website at traumaresourceinstitute.com. That's traumaresourceinstitute.com. Trauma Resource Institute. Build resilience. Awaken hope. Your life. Your health. Your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Resiliency Within with Elaine Miller Karras. To reach the show during our live broadcast, please call in to 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Elaine at resiliencywithin.com. Now, back to this week's show. This is Elaine Miller-Karis, and I'm here with Phil Allen, and we've been talking about his documentary, Open Wounds, and his book, Open Wounds, that will be released tomorrow. And we've been talking about his grandfather, Nathaniel, who was murdered, uh, sadly, in 1953 in South South Carolina. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about how can we be less divisive in our country? What are some of the ways that we can move forward in um, changing the dialogue, changing the narrative? And Phil, can you share with us again your your four L's? And I think if we can maybe dive into the labor part um, or anything else you want to say about the other the other L's, um, I'm going to turn it back over to you. So, <laughs> Yeah. If I can give some background as to how I came yes. up with that. Yeah, please. I was in a class... Um, called Theology and Ethics of Martin Luther King Jr. And we were watching a film, uh, Eyes on the Prize. You can see it on on YouTube, the whole document. It's a PBS series. It's great. And a picture of Emmett Till was on the screen. Mm -hmm. And um, for the first time, I realized I can't look at Emmett Till without seeing my grandfather. Because his body would have... Right. Can you say a little bit about, there might be people that don't know about Emmett Till. So, so say a little bit about him before you can. Emmett, Emmett Till was a 14 year old kid from Chicago. He was visiting family in um, Money, Mississippi. And um, he, he was accused of whistling or saying, hey, baby, to a white woman in the store where he was buying some, I guess, candy or something, uh, which turned out to be a lie. Um, she later admitted year, decades later, but the, the woman's husband and brother came looking for him, found him at, I think at his grandfather's house, took him out of the house, um, shot, t- tied him, tied something around his neck, threw it in the ocean and he drowned. And I think they may have shot him as well, but he drowned and then his body was found later. And so it reminded me and, and, also, yes. his mother wanted to make sure the world knew or saw what they did to her son. So she had an open casket and she showed, they took a picture of it and it was in the Jet magazine. So, th- yes. so the world has seen that picture. So when I saw the picture, and I'd seen it growing up, but this was the first time I actually thought about my grandfather. So I shared that in class with two classmates. We had broken up in small groups to reflect. 
And when I shared what happened to them, they began to have tears began to to fall. That was the first time I'd ever experienced where white folks responded emotionally to black tragedy. I'd never experienced that before. And so what happened to you when you saw their tears? What what was your reflection? There was a it was healing for me. It was it was I needed to see I needed to see that they actually cared that it wasn't an uh, intellectual exercise we were doing watching that film, that it was real. I shared it with the rest of the class and more people tears were flowing. And so right down right then I wrote down, listen, learn, lament, labor over over the rest of that class because they were in a position of listening to my story. They were in a context of learning. They were learning from Dr. Hak Jun Lee, who was a Korean MLK scholar, an ethics scholar. So they were listening to him, learning from him about Martin Luther King Jr. These are white students, classmates. And then they were lamenting. So they went from intellectual exercise, watching a video on screen and talking about it, like a history lesson, to this is real. Because here is a classmate whose grandfather experienced something very similar. So they're, they're lamenting, they're grieving. And one young man said, yeah. as you see your grandfather in Emmett Till, I'm seeing my grandfather in the man who killed him. Oh, wow. And I, I guarantee you he'd never thought about that before. No, so that moment, the interchange between the two of you, then what happened next? What else, what was the conversation like? Wow. Well, you know, he was trying to speak through tears because he shared with the rest of the class as well. And I just felt like it was, it was a microcosm or a model of what should be happening more broadly. The acknowledgement of what happens to, to my grandfather and more broadly black people historically and currently, but also what is it causing you to think about? And, and so he wasn't, we, pre- go ahead. And how do we recreate those moments? I mean, this was a class where you had this opportunity to, to lament together. So when we're thinking about society at large, how, I mean, maybe through your book and through your, um, through your documentary, but how do we do that? How do we create I, those moments? I mean, that to me is one of the most important things. I think in, in one sense, you build your library. That's one way you can very uh, easily begin to learn, listen and learn from people of color, particularly black folks. You can watch film. You, you have friends where you don't want to put the pressure on them to have to keep talking about stuff without you actually doing some work as well. But putting yourself in position. And I say when I say yourself, I'm talking about white folks because because. Typically, the white community doesn't have to put themselves in that situation. So being at a church where there's a black pastor preaching and teaching, taking classes in school from teachers of color, um, sitting in contexts where you're uncomfortable. So choosing not to be in your silo, choosing not to be in the silo, to open that up. Yes. Absolutely. So, you know, so... For me, I almost have to be. As, as black and brown folks, we have to be. We have to go to work. We have to go to school. We, we likely have to come out of our communities into the dominant 
with the dominant group. Oh, this is so interesting because I was reading something about one of the legislators, and I can't remember which one, but who was in the the horrible thing that happened on Janu- January 6th, the insurgency. And and his thought was, oh, I'm going to, um, he was a, a, a white legislator. And I goes, well, I'm just going to kind of go in with the Republicans and maybe I'll be okay. And then all of a sudden the thought came that that was a privilege and an advantage and that his his friends who were also legislators that were people of color couldn't do that. And and the legislator said, and I, oh, I, I'm so sad that I can't remember the person's name, but that he learned about his privilege in such a visceral way that he had never understood before. And this is what you're talking about. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And so it's choosing. And, and I'm encouraged by the ones that do. I'm discouraged by the many that don't or won't. Yeah. They would rather fight, dismiss, discount, rather than actually be quiet and listen because our stories, past and present, are real, and they actually tell a, gro- a broader, a greater narrative. And so, when you talk about the labor part, now I know you've started a nonprofit. So, is the mission of the nonprofit to be the labor part to do these? These okay. So, I want you need to tell us about that because we need to know about the nonprofit. And tell the name again. I've already mentioned it, but it'd be nice to hear it in your voice. So, racial solidarity project. Um, that actually, that incident actually kind of inspired Racial Solidarity Project. And one of the things, one of the areas, it's just four areas of activism that we want to be a part of. One is justice advocacy, and that can be done in different ways. It's not just protesting and petitioning and writing your, your congress, con- congressmen and women, but it's also addressing issues um, of inequity in our, in our society, being active in that. And we're just getting started. So this is not, this is in the this planning stage. This is a stages. really important subject. I think many people don't know the difference between inequity and inequality. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's so important that we know the difference. Yeah. And so when, when we think about equality, we're thinking about um, status. You know, when someone's, so I don't need someone to tell me I'm, we're, we're equal. I already know that. Equity comes into play when we're talking about how structures and systems have been in place that have caused advantages and disadvantages according to race. Yes. And so some people have access to things more readily. Some people are more insulated from things. And so just like if we take something like education, we can say, oh, all children in the United States have equal access to education, but are all educational systems equitable? Not at all. And and we can start with funding. So there's a last time I researched, there's a $23 billion gap between predominantly white schools and predominantly schools of color, black and brown. Now, yes, it's based a lot. A lot of that is based on property value. Well, then why is there a disparity in property value? Now we got to go back into redlining. Right. And the legacy of redlining and how it's caused decline in the black community when you withhold resources for so long. And the only time resources come back into the community is to gentrify. Right. Which so then that, dislocates. And, and those are systems and structures where policy yes. is, is, is really done that actually benefits one group and makes another, per, another group disadvantaged. Yes. Yeah. And, and so and we even, change that. Well, we have to we have to undo that. And that's not an overnight thing, but that needs to be undone. It needs to be taken seriously. But even without the, the if we go part 
step away from the funding from property, from taxes, even the, the money that's given from the states and federal uh, or from the states is still very, it's only about a $300 difference between the two, the schools of color and, and white schools per student. And that's a $300 more for uh, schools of color, student per student at schools of color. But that's only a $300 difference when mm-hmm. there's a, already a $23 billion gap. So where is the need? Right. So why not invest more? Right. And, you know, I, I think that we've been seeing that, too, play out with the pandemic. Because I think with the pandemic, and we saw it in, in very uh, concrete ways when children didn't have access to Internet because their families couldn't afford internet in their buildings. Yes. So you can give a child, for example, oh, all kids get iPads, but can you all use the iPad? Yes. If, so that is just, that's a very simple. Very example. simple equality and equity. All yes. kids get laptops. Yes, but not all kids can use the laptops. But not all kids can use the laptops because right. of the structures and how they have, uh, how they have, constructed, for lack of a better term, the, the various communities, the different communities. And so your nonprofit, how will your nonprofit then be involved in these kinds of discussions? How will you be bringing people together? Well, that's one area. The other area of activism is in education. And so this is where I want to provide these workshops or training in these spaces where we can teach this, the stuff that you and I are talking about now, the his, from the history, the sy- systems and structures, the inequities, what have you, um, and hearing the stories as well, um, creating those spaces. Then there's the wellness piece. And this is where addressing trauma comes yes. in. I think that's a form of activism. Well, and we have something in common because um, you know that I'm the developer of the community resiliency model and you've become recently a community resiliency model teacher. Now, why have you decided to do that? That was a choice that you made after we got to know each other. But how does that fit into what you're planning to do? I, I, I think after doing the film, thinking about my grandmother, thinking about my dad, even myself, that's a part of the equation I think was overlooked that we want to address the systems and structures. We want to fight, fight, fight. We want to resist, resist, resist. But in the meantime, we're, we're not well. Right. We're tired. We're beaten. We're broken. We're wounded. And because, so if that is not addressed. Right. And that's where the trauma informed, but the resiliency informed that you and I both believe in, right? So yes. how do we stabilize ourselves in our, at our hearts, our minds, our body, our thoughts? If we are doing work, that the very nature of it, when we hear stories like your, your grandfather's, uh, like Emmett Till's, that how could that not impact us as we hear the stories? And if you're a person of color, why, and we see in the news every single day, someone being killed for just being someplace where someone didn't like the way they looked and something happened to them, right? So, yeah. You know, how do we show up as our best selves and not be in a place of fear? Constantly? Absolutely. So, so that is part of what you have brought into the, your thinking. That, that's part of, that's one of the four ways of, uh, four forms of activism. Okay. And then the last piece is community building. Because while I, while we may fight for justice, then what? Right. If we don't build the community, and this is drawn from Dr. King, Dr. King's idea of the beloved community, 
the great world house. If we don't go that far, we're going to all, we're going to have to come back around a generation later and fight for more in, against more injustices because we never built the community. We, we never went that far. And so, of course, what Martin Luther King did and at that time in the civil rights movement, you know, we know, you and I both know uh, Rena Evers, Medgar Evers' daughter. We know that she continues to work in that way, but it's not done. And I think no. there might have been some folks out there that would have thought, oh, well, we already had that civil rights movement. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people say that, but yep. it's not done. And so this is no. like, this is, this is a, um, I don't know what, how we would call it, but I think that um, the death of George Floyd opened up something, I think, in our country. Um, it was not kind of like, oh, this really is happening, this awareness. Can you talk a little bit about that connection and how this is all intersecting? Yeah, I think what happened with George Floyd, for most black people that I know, it was not a surprise. It was shocking to see, yes. but it was not a surprise. And if, it, if it's something like that, not that, obviously not being shot, but if you didn't come close to that, many black people I know, including myself, have had one or more incidents with law enforcement over the course of their lives. Yes. To this day, when I'm driving, if I ride past a police officer, my body responds. Right. So do you get, like your grandma, do you get stiff? Yes. I get, I get nervous. Yeah. Anxious. Anxious. Um, not as bad as it used to, but because of multiple experiences in, when, in my 20s, my body remembers that. Yeah. There are many African-Americans who have that same experience, that same response. So for a lot of white Americans, a lot of my white friends, this was like, oh my goodness, what, what's going on? And we're saying, we were trying to tell you, this is a reality. Right. We can go back to, to I just wrote a paper on the, 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 the use of the camera. Yes. How vital the camera has been to the black experience from Dr. King on. If and it were not for the camera, right? If it, if it were not for the camera, th would the civil rights movement have been as effective? And so here you are now, a, a filmmaker, and you have been very impacted by going on this path of writing, filmmaking, being a student of, of theology. And this is all coming together in your life right now to help this awareness expand. So, Absolutely. I, you know, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit about this. and I know we, we shared some questions, but, you know, what have you personally learned about yourself um, as you reflect on this journey as we're getting ready to end our journey together today? Um, is there, what, what would you like to say to us that you want to really leave um, our listeners with? I, I want to go back to what, you, to what you always talk about, the resiliency. I don't know if we realize how resilient we are. I know in my community, we talk about trauma, but we also talk about how resilient our ancestors were, 246 years of slavery, 12 years of reconstruction, 90 years of Jim Crow into the civil rights movement, mm -hmm. continuing to this day, and we're still here. And we're still fighting the era of Black Lives Matter movement there's a resiliency that I didn't know I had until I did this film and I've cried yeah. and I've been angry. I've been um, confused. I've been dazed and I've been excited in this whole process. And so I invite people to engage. 
because, you, you know, we talk about white fragility. Black people are not trying to take over. <laughs> We're not trying to do harm. We want equity. Yeah. Right. Um, if you look at our culture historically, we're some of the most hospitable people you'll ever meet. If you would trust enough to engage, you will like see you how resilient. And like you engaged in that class. Yes. Yes. So that kind of engagement changed you and it changed your, your colleagues, your, yeah. fe- your fellow classmates. And you, and you believe, I think what you're saying is that this can be replicated all over the country and the world. Yes, this is the labor. This, this is part is the of the labor. But there's it, also an acknowledgement that I'm also hearing that's important that every person of color, remember, is about your resilience. That as yes. much as there's been trauma and sadness, lament, suffering, there's also been an incredible resilience. And can you sense that resilience inside of you? You know I was going to ask that question, right? Absolutely. Can you sense that? As I talk about it, I can can sense it in in my body. Yeah, there's an energy that I'm seeing in him. I know that you can't, but I can, (laughs) maybe you can hear it in his voice. So, you know, I I often say um, these words about like, what else is true? Um, Is that, can you tell me what your, what else is true about all the things that we've been talking about today? I think that may be it. Okay. That that may be it. The the, the resiliency um, is true as well. The resiliency. The inter, we talk about intergenerational trauma. Well, there's yes. intergenerational resilience. Yes, intergenerational. That also is true. And so, and let's remember that that is true. And so, can you tell us, the listeners, if they want to get a hold of you, how do they get a hold of you? Um, on social media, everything is um, Phil Allen Jr. Um, okay. Instagram, you add an IG to it. But okay. Facebook and Twitter is at Phil Allen Jr. My, um, you can email me, phil at thersp.org, T-H-E-R-S-P.org. Um, those are the ways you can get in touch. Social media is pretty easy. And how about well. if they wanted to see your um, movie, if they wanted to see your documentary, how could they find out about showings of the documentary? You can um, go to philallenjr.com for any updates on me. That's another place where to, to see it, to see to keep up with me. But openwoundsdoc.com, which is also connected to the website, it's on the website, Phil Allen Jr. Great. Openwoundsdoc.com um, is where you can you'll see the video. It'll follow the instructions to to watch the film, and then the book is on Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, or uh, uh, Fortress Press. Okay. So you have many ways to get in touch with Phil. Phil, I just want to say to you, I, every time we have a conversation, I am inspired. And I'm inspired about really your hope and your courage of bringing this story forward, because I know it's not always easy. And um, so I want to just remember, remind everyone to please buy his book. I want everybody <laughs> to read your book. And also want to share with everybody that my guest next week will be Rena Evers Everett, the daughter of Medgar Evers. Um, And she will tell a little bit of her story and the amazing work that she does as the executive director of the Medgar and Mary Lee Evers Institute in Jackson, Mississippi. And I just want to say one more word to all of our listeners. Some of you may be um, feel unsettled by some of the things that we've talked about today. Maybe you feel inspired as well, but I want you all to remember what else is true in your life. If there's a moment when life is, you know, derailing you, just as we've seen the resiliency in, in dear Phil Allen and his family, I want to I want to add 
I know that exists in all of you as well. So we will see you next week, uh, same time, same station. This is Elaine miller Karras signing off for the day from Resiliency Within. Thank you again, Phil. Thank you so much for joining us this week for Resiliency Within. Please tune in again next Monday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Elaine miller Karras on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll talk again soon.